You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts. Hello, my name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast. Hello, and welcome to the Explorers Podcast. This is part three in our series on English explorer Francis Drake. Last time, we covered Drake's life as a pirate. From 1570 to 1573, Drake terrorized the Spanish main. His exploits culminated with an attack on the fabled Spanish treasure caravan as it made its way across the Isthmus of Panama. The ambush had made Drake beloved in England, as well as hated and feared in Spain. He had punched King Philip right in the nose and gotten away with it. Thus, Drake had fame, wealth, and a reputation as being one of the most daring men in the nation. In today's episode, we are going to get Drake started on his most famous voyage of discovery, the circumnavigation of the world. But let's not get too far ahead of ourselves. Here's our agenda for the day. First, we will take a brief look at Drake's activities in the wake of his return to England, and then follow with a run-up to his next expedition. We will then go with Drake as he sails from England, intent on harassing the Spanish on the western coast of the Americas. As a note, I have posted a map of the key places discussed in this podcast on our website, explorerspodcast.com. With that, here is part three in our series on Francis Drake. Drake had returned to England in August of 1573. Privately, his countrymen applauded Drake for his exploits, but publicly, the reaction was muted. Now, let us remember that Spain and England had been at odds for years, much of the tension due to the Spanish attempts to pacify Protestants in the Netherlands. Well, things had changed. England and Spain had come to an agreement, leading to a better relationship. King Philip had promised more religious freedoms for the Protestants, and he opened up Spanish-controlled ports and markets to English traders, something that was important to British merchants. In return, the British Crown agreed to discourage English privateers from preying on Spanish shipping, allowing for Philip's ships to move freely to the Netherlands and back. So, when Drake came home, he was told, Great job, now keep your head down. I mean, everyone loved what he had done, but it was just bad politics to celebrate in public. Now, the next couple of years saw Drake keep a low profile, and not a lot is really known about what he did. Drake reappears in 1575, working with Walter Devereux, the Earl of Essex. Devereux had a royal charter to pacify parts of Ireland. Much of this would have been in the area of Ulster, or what is today Northern Ireland. This entire enterprise is not important to our story, but there are a couple things I want to talk about regarding the situation. First, here we see Drake's growing influence. He was developing connections with British royals. I can't stress how important this was. Drake needed friends in high places to do the kinds of things that he wanted to do. Drake had some money, and he was respected. 
but he needed to connect with higher-ups in the government in order to gain approval and procure additional financing for any further expeditions he had in mind. And he definitely had something big in mind. And second, there was one incident I want to talk about that occurred during his time in Ireland. For this Irish enterprise, Drake's job was likely to support the expedition. He would deliver men and supplies as needed, chase down rogue ships, and just about anything that was needed in such a campaign. Well, in the summer of 1575, the Earl of Essex set his sight on Rathlin Island, a few miles off the coast of Northern Ireland. The island, which had a formidable castle, was used by the Scottish-based Macdonalds of Atrum as a base of operations in Ulster. The island was considered a sanctuary, as the rocky shores and dangerous tides and unpredictable winds made it a difficult place to approach. Drake would be charged with landing an English force on the island, and in late July, he successfully accomplished that task. He then went about destroying any boats on the island to prevent anyone from fleeing. The English force, under the leadership of Sir John Norris, who was the overall commander of the expedition, chased the island's population into the castle and lay siege to the fortress. Drake then landed a pair of big siege guns on the island, and the British began to bombard the castle. As the attack went on, Drake's ship sailed around the island, preventing any reinforcements from reaching the defenders. On July 25th, the English commander, John Norris, struck a deal with the garrison. In exchange for their surrender, the castle's leader, or constable as he was called, was given safe passage along with his family. The rest of the garrison was subject to Norris's mercy. And mercy was not going to be had. The result was a slaughter. Norris's men would murder 200 defenders, as well as 400 civilians, including women and children, and the sick and the elderly. No one was spared. This is an example of how brutal warfare could be at this time. While slaughtering an entire town was not common, it was not unknown. Norris would be congratulated for his actions. As for Drake, he was not the commander of this enterprise, and from what we have seen about him in the past, it is doubtful that he would have approved of the actions of Norris and his men. But the Rathlin Island Massacre, as it is now known, is a blemish on Drake's career. I felt it was something I should mention, even if it doesn't really affect our story going forward. Drake would be done with the Irish Enterprise by the end of 1575. Back in England, he would go about plotting his next expedition, one that he had been planning since sighting the Pacific Ocean two years earlier. Drake wanted to take a fleet of ships and sail south, go through the Strait of Magellan, and then proceed up the western coast of the Americas and strike the Spanish where they were most vulnerable. As of 1575, no one had ever threatened Spanish shipping on the western coast of the Americas. Drake wanted to be the first to do so. It was a bold and ambitious plan, but getting to the Pacific was no simple task. The Spanish had accomplished it first in 1520 under Ferdinand Magellan, but the strait he had found, which now bears his name, was considered very dangerous, and not many had followed in Magellan's wake. The passage from the Atlantic to the Pacific featured powerful and sudden storms, strong currents, and not to mention dangerous shoals. Also, the only real time to pass through the strait was in the summer and midwinter months, only the very best mariners dared the voyage. Once through the Strait of Magellan, a ship would then have to travel north, where the coast of Chile was subject to notoriously tricky and dangerous winds. All the while, for thousands of miles, there were no ports to put into for repairs, or to gather food or water. It was a terribly dangerous voyage, and for someone like Drake, he would have no historic knowledge at his disposal. The Spanish weren't going to give him his charts and maps. These were trade secrets to them, and jealously guarded and Drake didn't have anyone who had ever completed the voyage. In all honesty, the English just had not done that much exploring up to this point. 
I read that in 1576, when English sea captain Martin Frobisher sailed in search of a northwest passage, he didn't carry a single bit of research or writing of British origin. This meant that everything the English had was not particularly trustworthy. No matter, Drake was not dissuaded. He wanted to cross into the Pacific and prey on the vulnerable Spanish shipping. Now, it's important to know that Drake wasn't the first to propose this idea. In 1574, a British nobleman, Sir Richard Grenville, proposed sending a fleet of ships to the Pacific. His goal was to set up a settlement on the east coast of South America, then cross into the Pacific for trading and exploration. He even received a patent from the Queen to pursue the project. As you can imagine, Spain protested the entire enterprise. Even though they had not settled much of South America, Spain still considered it their territory. And no one wanted to upset the Spanish crown at this time, thus the idea was quietly squelched. However, Grenville offered an alternative. He proposed an expedition to cross through the Strait of Magellan and sail north, way north, past the Spanish possessions in Central America, and look for a western outlet to the Northwest Passage. This would not infringe on Spanish claims. Grenville's plan would ultimately come to nothing, and he would end up supporting Drake's scheme. Now, one other adventure I want to note was an expedition to the Caribbean in April of 1576, led by a man named John Oxenham. Oxenham had been with Drake on his previous venture, and had commanded one of the ships in the fleet after the death of Drake's brother. Well, Oxenham returned to the New World with a daring scheme, one that likely made Drake proud. Oxenham had a single ship and 57 men. They landed in Panama and hid the ship. Oxenham next went inland and struck up a partnership with the Cimarrones, the escaped slaves who had aided Drake in their last adventure. Oxenham next went to the western side of Panama and built a 45-foot oared boat from cedar trees. They then began to attack Spanish shipping in the Pacific. In doing so, John Oxenham became the first person to wage war on the Spanish on the western side of the Americas, beating Francis Drake to the punch. Oxenham had some initial successes, as the Spanish were completely surprised by an enemy ship in their waters. But the English force was limited in size and strength. Oxenham would eventually retreat, abandoning any treasure he had acquired. The English would eventually be tracked down and either killed or captured by the Spanish. Oxenham would be captured and then later executed. Into this breach came Francis Drake. Now, as we have mentioned, Drake had been talking about this scheme ever since he had returned from the Caribbean in 1573. Initially, the improved relations with Spain would mean that his proposal had been met with skepticism. However, that had been in 1574. In 1576, well, let's just say that the Spanish-English relationship wasn't going particularly well. Thus, when Drake brought up the idea, he had the attention of some powerful men and women. Drake had two challenges. First, he had to secure financing, and second, he had to get approval for his expedition from the crown. For money, Drake would bring in investors from amongst those he had established relationships over the past decade or so. This would include John Hawkins, as well as Sir Christopher Hatton, the latter a wealthy nobleman who happened to be a favorite of Queen Elizabeth. Drake himself would put £1,000 into the affair. Another man involved was Thomas Doty, a charming and educated nobleman who had been an aide to the Earl of Essex as well as the personal secretary of Thomas Hatton. Doty and Drake had bonded in Ireland, and Doty would support Drake's plan with money and influence. With money and backers lining up, Drake then turned to getting support of the English crown. From the court of Queen Elizabeth, Drake would find champions in Robert Dudley, the Earl of Leicester, and Francis Walsingham, the Queen's Secretary of State. 
Both men were vocal supporters for action against Spain, and, along with men like Christopher Hatton, sought to convince Elizabeth as to the merits of Drake's scheme. In time, Drake's plan gained enough support that he was brought in to meet Queen Elizabeth for the first time. It would have been a huge honor for Drake, a man from his background being introduced to the Queen. He had always been a great believer in the crown, and to meet her and receive her support, that would have justified all that he was doing in the world. So, the Queen was in Drake's corner, but her support would come with some caveats. Elizabeth was a cagey politician and reluctant to support a public enterprise that was so blatantly anti-Spanish. So, she would give Drake her blessing, but she would have some safeguards put into place to shield her from any blowback from King Philip. Thus, instead of creating a single plan, Drake would instead create three plans. Plan one was the public plan. This was a trade mission to Alexandria and Istanbul. If anyone asked, this was what Drake was up to. Plan two was the official plan within the government. With plan two, Drake would go to South America, head through the Strait of Magellan, and proceed to trade for spices and other goods. He would then return. It was an expedition that was expected to take maybe a year or so. Ah, but there was also a plan three, and this was the real plan. Drake would go to the western coast of the Americas and punch King Philip in the nose, and the groin, and wherever else he could be punched. However, Plan 3 was to be conducted under the table. There were no contracts or patents or commissions given out. Drake was going to go privateering for Queen Elizabeth, but without her official approval, which in reality just makes him a pirate, again. No matter, she could deny everything if Drake failed. But make no bones about it, Elizabeth fully supported Drake, even investing £1,000 in the expedition. For Elizabeth, and many in England, they feared the growing power of King Philip, They feared that once the Netherlands were subjugated, the Spanish Empire would turn its attention toward Protestant England, which, to be honest, was kind of true. Thus, if Drake could disrupt the source of so much of Spain's wealth, Elizabeth was good with such an enterprise. So, Drake had his financing and support in place. It was now time to prepare the fleet. For his flagship, Drake would build a new vessel. It must have been a big deal for him, like getting a shiny new pickup instead of being forced to drive a rusty 2003 sedan. The new ship, which had a tonnage of between 120 and 150 tons, was built in 1576 and named Pelican. She was said to be a sturdy vessel, her hull sheathed in extra planking to deter rotting. While not that big, she carried 18 guns. As for the rest of the fleet, Drake had four other ships. The 80-ton Elizabeth sported 16 guns. She was commanded by John Winter, the son of one of the expedition's backers. The 30-ton Marigold, captained by John Thomas, was the next vessel. While not large, she still had 16 guns. The next ship was the 50-ton Swan, a smaller vessel called a flyboat. Used mainly as a supply ship, she had five guns. John Chester was the commander. By the way, this is not the same Swan from our last episode. That ship had been scuttled back in the Caribbean. Finally, there was Benedict, a 15-ton ocean-going pinnace under the command of Tom Moon. Benedict had a single gun. The fleet would have 160 men, half of those on Pelican. Amongst the men, you would find the usual folks, doctors and coopers and so forth, but there is also some unique individuals amongst the crew, including a botanist, a naturalist, some merchants, and a preacher. Also, there were a number of gentlemen aboard. I'm using my air quotes around the word gentlemen. These would be men of high birth or station, or children of such men. One such gentleman was Thomas Doty, Drake's friend from Ireland. Doty was a nobleman and a financial investor. He would serve as an officer in the fleet and will play a very large role in today's episode. 
Other people of note include Drake's brother, Thomas, as well as his 15-year-old cousin, John, who would serve as a page. A nephew of John Hawkins was also part of the crew. A final person I want to mention is Diego, the escaped slave from Panama. He was on board as well, a trusted comrade to Drake. The fleet would have food and supplies for 18 months. The list included beer, wine, salt, cheese, butter, rice, beef, pork, fish, vinegar, and so on and so forth. There would also be supplies to build a fort, in case it was necessary. This included axes and shovels and spades. As for weaponry, it was pretty much standard. Pikes and arquebuses and helmets and spears and shields. One thing I noted that was unique was the inclusion of explosives, crude grenades that could be lit and thrown onto an enemy ship. The last thing I want to mention was that Drake brought along an account of Magellan's voyage, as well as the latest maps. However, most of that stuff would prove to be of limited use, as it was out of date or inaccurate. I hope I'm not getting too nerdy with all this stuff, but I love all these details. We don't always get these kinds of records from this era, so I thought it was cool to share. Drake and his fleet departed from Plymouth on November 15, 1577. The great expedition to the western coast of the Americas was on its way. Or not. In what might have felt like a bad omen, severe weather almost immediately forced the five ships back to England, first to Falmouth and then Plymouth, where they would have to conduct repairs and replace provisions. The fleet would depart for a second time on December 13th. Now, let's remember that almost everyone in the fleet believed they were going to Egypt. But when the fleet headed out to sea and then passed the Strait of Gibraltar, well, you can imagine that there were a lot of questions. I mean, let's face it, deceiving the men of the fleet was a jerk move. But Drake and the fleet's organizers felt that it was necessary. Otherwise, the Spanish would eventually have found out what was up and thus could have threatened Queen Elizabeth with retaliation or even intercepted the fleet. No matter, the decision was done. The fleet was not going to Egypt, and everyone knew it. However, that does not mean that people were happy about it. In some ways, this kind of thing was new to Drake. In the past, he had always had a crew that fully supported him. But now, there was a dangerous undercurrent amongst the crew. Their commander, the great Francis Drake, had lied to them. Many grumbled that they would never have gone on such an expedition if they had known it was headed elsewhere. And all it takes is a few people to stoke these frustrations. And well, we will get there in short order. Drake headed south, eventually reaching the Cape Verde Islands and the coast of Africa. Here he would take on supplies and provisions, as well as harass Spanish and Portuguese shipping. He would capture six ships during this time, including the Santa Maria, which he thought sufficient for his needs. He renamed her Mary, perhaps in honor of his wife, and added her to the fleet. Drake would appoint Thomas Doty as captain. Another important addition to the fleet at this time was a Portuguese navigator named Nuno da Silva. Silva had been on one of the ships taken by Drake in January, and his addition was not voluntary. But his experience was highly desired as he had sailed the waters of South America. His knowledge, as well as his maps and charts, would be helpful to Drake. Now is a good time to talk a little bit about Thomas Doty, the new captain of Mary, because he is going to dominate the rest of this episode. As we talked about earlier, Doty had been a friend of Drake's and an investor in the expedition, as well as an officer. However, Doty's role is somewhat confusing. On one hand, you have some historians who place him amongst the top commanders of the expedition. And Doty, whether it was true or not, sort of portrayed himself that way to the other men of the fleet. He liked to brag how important he was, and how he had been the person who had gotten Drake the command of the expedition. He even told others that Drake was required to consult with him on all major decisions. And while Drake and Doty had begun the enterprise as friends, that would change very quickly. 
It was while off the coast of Africa that Doty would accuse Drake's brother Thomas of stealing valuables from one of the Spanish ships the fleet had captured. Drake was furious at Doty, accusing him of undermining his command and trying to embarrass him and his family. However, things appeared to settle down. Drake would even give Doty command of Pelican and move over to the newly acquired Mary. It was an odd decision, perhaps one done to appease Doty. But things were only going to get worse. Remember, Doty was a smart and eloquent and likable man, and he appeared to use those skills to talk trash about Drake. It's likely that Doty preyed on two dissatisfied groups. First, there were the gentlemen of the fleet. These would have been the nobles and well-connected men, many of whom had never before been on an ocean voyage. These men would have looked down on Drake, who was a commoner. It would have been easy for Doty to play the social class card here and stir up his fellow nobleman against the low-born son of a preacher. And second, there were those who resented Drake's deception about the fleet's destination. It would have been simple for Doty to spot these dissenters and poison the well with them against Drake. Now, you may ask, to what purpose was Doty doing all this? And that is a good question. The general thought is that Doty wanted to command the fleet. Perhaps he honestly felt that it was his due. Now, had he always wanted command? Well, we just don't really know. One theory is that Doty had been an agent of William Burley, one of the Queen's main advisors. Burley was not a fan of poking the Spanish bear, and the idea was that he had worked it out with Doty to take command of the fleet in order to prevent it from causing irreparable harm to English-Spanish relations. In my own opinion, I just get this feeling that Doty and Drake were both very strong-willed, bordering on arrogant, men. They both very much believed in their own position, and each knew how to poke and prod and tweak each other, making the situation more intolerable by the day. Eventually, this clash of wills will cause the situation to come to a head, and Drake would strip Doty of his command. He would send Doty to the Swan in order to minimize his interactions with the crew. By the way, if you have listened to our podcast on Ferdinand Magellan, you'll remember that Magellan ran into this almost exact same situation on his expedition. For him, he was challenged repeatedly by the son of a powerful Spanish official. The main difference between Drake and Magellan's situations was that it was not social status that would divide the adversaries, but nationality. Magellan was Portuguese, and thus not trusted by many. Both situations would end up badly. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED lights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. In early 1578, the fleet headed west, reaching Brazil on February 20th, likely in the area of the River Platte. The fleet would immediately go about taking on provisions, including food and water, as well as making needed repairs. The fleet would also strike up relations with the locals. Drake had learned from his time with the Cimarrones that a bit of patience could go a long way. To get into the good graces of the locals, Drake would set out presents on the shore and then depart, allowing the natives to come and inspect the items in their own way and in their own time. The natives would then leave what they felt was a worthy exchange. In this way, the fleet and the locals struck up a productive and friendly relationship. 
The English found the natives friendly, and the natives loved the English music, including the drums and trumpets. And Drake tolerated the petty thievery that occurred, knowing that it was worth it to stay on good terms with the natives. No doubt there was sex to be had as well, which made everyone happy. Now, despite reaching Brazil and adding on supplies, there was some discontent within the fleet. This, as you can imagine, centered around Thomas Doty and his allies. On one hand, Doty was stewing resentment against Drake, but on the other hand, Doty and his allies were becoming disliked by the rest of the crew. These were the gentlemen we had talked about. These upper-class men felt that working on a ship was beneath them, and they refused to help in the operation of the ships. This, as you can imagine, led to anger and resentment. Dealing with this class conflict was new to Drake. At one point, the master of the Swan, who hated Doty, had the worst food on the ship sent to the gentlemen, an act that angered them. And the most frustrating thing for the gentleman was that the master of the ship was within his rights to do such a thing. These kinds of actions just stirred the pot until it was ready to explode. And explode it did. In May, a storm would break up the fleet, and once it had gotten back together, Drake came to the conclusion that Doty had been practicing witchcraft. Now, we may roll our eyes at this, but this was a serious accusation. On May 17, 1578, Drake and Doty got into an argument, and Drake struck Doty. Drake ordered the rest of Doty, even having him tied to a mast on the ship. Drake called him, quote, a conjurer and seditious person, end quote. The fleet would head south with Thomas Doty, as well as his brother John, under arrest. It was in these next few weeks that Drake would order the scuttling of the two smallest ships in the fleet, the flyboat Swan and the Pinnace. These small ships were considered less seaworthy in these rough waters. Plus, the men could take the parts of these ships and use them on repairs on the sturdier vessels. On June 20th, the fleet, now down to four ships, arrived at Port San Julian, a natural harbor in Patagonia roughly 240 miles north of the Strait of Magellan. It was the furthest south any Englishman had ever sailed. If the name Port San Julian sounds familiar, it should. This was the exact same location that Ferdinand Magellan had wintered at back in 1520. It was also the same place that he dealt with his mutinous comrades. On the shore of the bay, it was said that the wooden gallows built 58 years earlier by Magellan to hang one of his mutinous men still stood, bleached white by the wind and seawater. It was a grim reminder of the cost of mutiny. At Port San Julian, Drake would land with six other men and encounter some natives. The initial reactions were positive, but at some point, the locals turned on the English and began to fire arrows at them. Two of the English would be hit and killed in the initial melee. Drake would form a shield wall with the survivors to protect themselves, then retrieve a fallen arquebus, which had misfired. He reloaded the weapon and fired, shooting and killing one of the natives. That ended the threat, and the natives retreated into the interior. They would not trouble Drake or his men for the rest of the stay. Still, as a precaution, the fleet's camp was set up on an island in the bay. Once the fleet had settled, it was time to deal with Thomas Doty. Drake believed that they could not continue divided as they were. On June 30th, the entire crew was summoned. Here, Drake presented his case against Doty, charging him with mutiny and treason. Drake asked for the death penalty. As you can imagine, Doty denied the charges and said he wanted a trial in England amongst his peers. Drake refused. This was a naval expedition, and Drake was the law. Doty, who was a lawyer, made a strong case for himself. He said the entire proceedings were illegal. He demanded that Drake show his commission from Queen Elizabeth, which actually gave him the authority to conduct the trial. It was a commission Drake did not have, since nothing was put on paper. Drake would wave aside the argument and insist he had the power. 
Testimony was then offered, the men in the fleet repeating some of the slanders and comments that Doty had uttered. Doty denied none of it. He argued that his words may have been malicious, but they were not mutinous in nature. The main piece of evidence offered against Doty came from one of the fleet's carpenters, a man named Edward Bright. Bright said that Doty had tried to enlist him in a plot to take over the fleet. Doty denied the accusation. Bright's testimony was considered by many to be questionable. Doty then made a mistake in saying that he had confessed to William Cecil, one of the Queen's advisers, as to the real nature of Drake's voyage. This allowed Drake to attack Doty for betraying the Queen, and saying it had always been Doty's plan, with Cecil's approval, to halt their venture. Now, some men tried to defend Doty, including his friend, a lawyer named Leonard Vickery. He argued that the proceedings were illegal, to which Drake said, quote, I have not to do with you crafty lawyers. Neither care I for the law, but I know I will do. End quote. In the end, a guilty verdict was reached, but no one seemed happy with the result. Doty's fate was perhaps sealed by the class divide in the fleet, the majority of whom were commoners. They may not have wholeheartedly agreed with Drake, and they may have resented being brought on this crazy expedition, but they probably trusted him a whole lot more than they did a guy like Doty and his cadre of high-born gentlemen. So, the guilty verdict was in. Now, what to do with Doty? Captain John Winter volunteered to keep Doty on the Elizabeth, but Drake was not keen to have the man remain in the fleet. His presence would always be a threat hovering over his authority. Drake then said that Doty could go on the Elizabeth, but the ship would have to return to England, without a share of the spoils. The ship's crew refused such an option. The lure of Spanish gold was just too strong. It is said that Doty was offered the option of being stranded in this desolate area, but he refused, and instead he chose to be executed. And thus the die was cast. Doty's death was surprisingly civilized, if you could say such a thing about an execution. Doty prayed with Drake, and the two took communion together. The condemned even had dinner with Drake, and it was said they were like old friends, sharing drinks and laughs with one another. Thomas Doty would be executed on July 2nd. He chose to die by the axe, which apparently was the gentlemanly way of being executed. Doty went to the block without falter, and is said to have prayed for God to protect the queen, and even asked for success for the voyage. He also asked for forgiveness for himself and his associates. Drake assured him that there would be no further reprisals. Once the deed was done, Drake held up the head of Doty and said, quote, Lo, this be the end of traitors. End quote. So, a few comments on the execution of Thomas Doty, which, as you can imagine, was controversial. First, most people ask, was it necessary? And, to be honest, I can't really answer that. However, I do not doubt that Drake felt that Doty was plotting mutiny. And if that was the case, then Drake probably did need to get rid of the man. Now, executing him, that was pretty severe, but we weren't there. Second, it is hard to fathom what could have possessed Doty to push Drake to such an action. I said before, I don't discount the whole class angle. Doty and his fellow nobles did not like being ordered about by Drake or any other commoner. As such, Doty may well have been arrogant enough to try and execute some scheme to take command. Again, we just don't really know all the specifics, so we are forced to guess. In the end, I wonder if Doty underestimated Drake. Drake had a reputation as a friendly and approachable person. His men loved and respected him for that. But underneath, Drake was steel. Maybe Doty didn't see that resolve, and he thought that he could make a play for the fleet's command. But that was a huge mistake, as Doty underestimated just how ruthless Francis Drake could be. Third thing, the trial and execution was not a cut-and-dry situation. 
What we know today comes from sources that were mostly friendly to Drake, and they no doubt backed him in the end. But let's be honest, there was a lot of questionable stuff going on here. Drake didn't have a commission from the Queen, so did he even really have the authority to act against Dodie? And was Dodie even really plotting to take command? Was Drake just paranoid about this whole thing? And were Dodie's crimes simply that of a guy who spoke too candidly? And were some of the things said about him lies? Remember Edward Bright, the carpenter whose testimony helped sink Dodie? Well, he would shortly after this whole sordid affair get a promotion to ship's master. So it makes you wonder. Again, we just have to shrug. We just don't know the answer to all of this. Oh well, on the final tally sheet, no one comes out looking good from this mess, but it is Drake that is left standing, so there is no doubt who's the winner of this conflict. The execution of Doty would always be a black mark on Drake's career. Many saw it as simple murder. But it would, mostly, resolve any problems of unrest within the fleet going forward. However, that did not mean Drake's behavior would be exonerated once he returned to England. The execution of Thomas Doty had solved a problem, but it would leave Francis Drake facing a perilous situation back home if he failed to justify that action. Remember, Thomas Doty had been a man of royal blood, a man with position and standing, a man with family and friends in high places. You executed a noble at your own risk. This meant that, for Drake, there was no going back. He had to be successful in his upcoming raids on the Spanish. If he went back to England without scoring a major victory, well, there would be people looking for retribution. Thus, Drake needed a big, big victory. So, with Doty dead, Drake still had some work to do. It had not just been Doty causing issues within the fleet. There were the many gentlemen, who were no doubt sympathetic toward Doty. Drake would address this on August 11th, when the men of the fleet gathered for church services. Drake would preach the need for unity between gentlemen and mariner, and he clearly stated that the gentlemen were expected to work alongside the mariners going forward. This was Drake laying down the law. No more slackers. Birth and societal position did not matter. He knew that life at sea was tenuous, and he could not afford to have some men lazing about while the rest of the crew struggled to keep everyone alive. Drake would conclude by presenting to his men the option to return home if they wanted, offering them one of the ships. Of course, this meant no loot, and no one took him up on it. Interestingly, this entire affair would set a precedent within the British Navy. Going forward, it was established that a captain held ultimate rule at sea, and no rank or social position could overrule the captain's orders. So, with all of that finally resolved, Drake was master of the fleet. No one would challenge him as Doty had done. It's not that he won't have issues going forward, but those would be minor annoyances in the grand scheme of things. And now it was time to continue with the voyage. But first thing, the ship that had been added off the coast of Africa, Mary, was scuttled, as her hull was found to be rotting badly, and was thus too great a risk to use going forward. That left Drake with three ships, Pelican, Elizabeth, and Marigold. The fleet would depart from Port San Julian on August 17th. They would reach the Cape of Virgins, the entrance to the Strait of Magellan, three days later. As the fleet waited for better weather to enter the strait, Drake would conduct a ceremony aboard Pelican, renaming the ship Golden Hind. A hind, by the way, is a female red deer. It was also the family crest of Sir Christopher Hatton, one of the fleet's primary investors. Hatton's personal secretary had been Thomas Doty. No doubt Drake was looking to make sure that Hatton would not take the execution of his former secretary as a personal insult. If you wanted someone to look kindly on you, naming your flagship after him was probably a good first step. Now it was time to enter the fabled Strait of Magellan, 300 miles of some of the most dangerous waters imaginable. 
It was a journey no Englishman had ever attempted, much less accomplished. Not even Drake's Portuguese pilot, Nuno da Silva, had been through the strait. So, with the fleet ready to go into the Strait of Magellan, that is where we will leave things for today. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Next time, we will take Drake through the Strait of Magellan and up the western coast of the Americas, as El Drake looks to pounce on the Spanish, who have no clue that he is prowling the Pacific. Thank you for listening. I will see you next time for part four in our series on Francis Drake.